I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast. And we have Brian Hales back. Thanks for coming back, Brian. Brian has been researching the the Book of Mormon for five years. Brian made this PDF about the Book of Mormon author gap. And we really wanted him to come on the Saints Unscripted podcast to talk about it. So maybe we can start with that, Brian. Do you... uh, can you talk about like what what is the Book of Mormon author gap and help explain that? <laughs> well, you know, to understand that, we have to go back to 2007 when I decided to research Joseph Smith and plural marriage. And at that time, uh, I I got Don Bradley involved, and we're we're jumping into this topic, very controversial. And I had some people ask me, well, Brian, aren't you afraid you're going to find out something that's going to affect your beliefs in Joseph? And, you know, I never really had a worry about that. And the reason was that I believed in 1829, Joseph could not have created the Book of Mormon. He didn't have the intellectual wherewithal to do that. And so I just thought he was a prophet in 1829. I didn't think he lost that, that he stayed worthy through 1844. So I really wasn't worried about it. Well, about five years ago, um, I had said about everything I thought I could say on the topic of plural marriage. And so I decided, let's test this idea. Could Joseph Smith have intellectually generated all the words of the Book of Mormon? And so for five years, I have been collecting the uh, skeptics' views, their explanations, and putting all of this data together. And what I have discovered or concluded, and I'm more than happy to have people disagree or or whatever, but it's that I have found a gap between the skills you would expect a person to have who has authored a very long, complex book and then dictated it rather than just written it, and those skills that are needed to do that, and then the skills that we can find in the historical record that Joseph Smith possessed in 1829. So there's a gap there. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, here in a minute. In fact, I could go to a to a video, visual here if you want. This shows the gap. And you see the skills here and the oratory skills that you would expect for somebody who's dictating a long, complex book. And then these are the level of, of skills we can document from the historical record for 1829. And as you said, I've, I've put together a, a couple or a, a two-page, it's a PDF, and well, there's links on my Facebook page, and there are also, I think we're going to put it in the show notes, uh, a link for a PDF where you can download your own. But this is kind of a, a summary of some of the data that I have compiled and that, that tell me just from the data, people say this is apologetic nonsense. It isn't. This is just historical data compared to scientific data, and uh, and it supports there's this gap. So um, if, if it's okay, 
Jake, I, I want to just maybe talk about first, what is the Book of Mormon? I mean, what is, if somebody were going to reverse engineer it, or if, if somebody were going to say, I'm going to write a book just like the Book of Mormon, what types of characteristics would that book need to have? And um, the word count is 269.320. And that comes from Stan Carmack. It's, it's one you can hang your head on. I didn't generate that. And Stan Carmack and Royal Skousen are the, the foremost experts on the primary manuscripts. Um, the average number of sentences in the Book of Mormon is 6,852. And what's remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this is that average is out to a sentence length of 39.3. And people want to say this is not significant, but it really is because if you're writing longer sentences, it means that you're embedding clauses and phrases and then coming back to the overall sentence topic. And uh, there's a reason why these other authors there, you can see most authors use shorter sentences. It's easier to write and it's much easier to understand if you, you complete a topic with a period and then go to the next sentence and, and they're, they're shorter sentences. So the length of the sentence is, is somewhat significant. It's not something that's, that's hugely significant, but it is an interesting finding. Reading level is eighth grade, and I submitted a, a, a text of the 1830 uh, Book of Mormon to every analysis algorithm online that I could find, and the average is around eighth grade or higher, and people have assumed that the Book of Mormon was in within Joseph Smith's writing ability, but it's really questionable whether it was even in his reading ability, and I'm quoting Don Bradley on that, but an observation that he made, but it isn't written so a third grader is going to be able to understand it, and yet that's probably about the level of formal schooling Joseph Smith had in 1829. It's in an early English dialect, and we're told that's not the King James Version. It's, it's an earlier version than that, and the reason that's kind of significant is if you're going to write or dictate a book, you would it would be easiest to do it in your everyday dialect. You know, this is not upstate New York. There are definitely uh, uh, words from Joseph Smith's upstate New York vernacular, but the book itself is not dictated in that form. So that would add a little difficulty to always have to be shifting into another dialect as you're talking. The original manuscript had no punctuation. And to, to think if this makes it easier or harder, the next time you're dictating a, an email or a, a text on your phone, just try to leave out all punctuation and see if that makes it easier or harder. Um, in some ways, it could be a little easier, but keep your ideas straight. And especially if you're dictating 40 word sentences, the lack of punctuation, I think, adds another level of dictation. Wow. Um, the number of unique words is 5,903, and that is not remarkable. In fact, that's, that's fewer than a lot of books have. Um, but what is interesting is that there are some very difficult vocabulary words that aren't in the Bible. Joseph could not have learned these from his reading the Bible. He would have had to learn them from reading other books. And we don't have anybody saying Joseph really read a lot of books. Some said he read dime novels or Arabian Nights or things like that. He would have had some exposure in school. But it is interesting that these vocabulary words are used appropriately and they're, they're very difficult. They're college level. Um, Joseph Smith invented uh, about 170 proper nouns. These are names of places, people, 
and money and, and things like this, food items. Uh, each one of these, you would expect him to have had to contemplate at least a little bit to be able to create this, this new proper noun. So the more there are, the more contemplation. Uh, making these up on the fly is not something most people feel they can do. Um, I don't want to talk a lot about the parallelisms, uh, the chiasmus and alternates, other than to say that the overall text is formatted. As Joseph is speaking, there's hundreds of chiasmus and, and, and other parallelisms. Just the text is formatted this way, and to mentally do this is hard. I created a, a book, or I'm sorry, an article that was published by Interpreter entitled Changing Critics' Criticisms of Book of Mormon Changes. It's a two-level chiasmus. And just creating that little thing took me probably 10 or 15 minutes just to get everything right. And yet the Book of Mormon has hundreds of these in there, which would have taken more mental energy and bandwidth. And yet Joseph never pointed it out to anybody. These were not discovered for over 100 years. So again, this formatting and doing it all mentally as a dictation is, is impressive. Um, multiple stylometric uh, studies have been done. And what that is, is looking at, could there be more than one author? And, and I don't want to get caught up in this, except to say that if I read the Book of Mormon, I can detect differences between Nephi and, say, Mormon. And then the computer can, too, and at least four different authors are, are detected. And so changing the voice as you're dictating, which Joseph apparently did, if, if he's doing this on his own, uh, would have added additional difficulty. One thing that's interesting, Jake, is that there are a lot of, of King James Version intertextuality. And what that means is there are phrases that show up in the Bible, but also are in integrated into the flowing text of the Book of Mormon. And some of these are there, and then they're just mildly altered in the Book of Mormon, or in the, uh, yeah, in the Book of Mormon version. And critics have been saying for decades that, oh, these, these uh, King James Version things couldn't have been on the plates. They must have come from Joseph Smith. This is this is proof that Joseph Smith is the author. And of course, the, the Book of Mormon word stream came as a revelation. So how similar it was to what was on the plates is unknown. This, that's a, a red herring argument. But the fact that the, the biblical phrases are integrated so seamlessly into the text and that Joseph is doing this in real time, I think demonstrates a level of difficulty that will, will support that he couldn't possibly have been the, uh, the author of all of these. You, he would have had to memorize the Bible, and there are several eyewitnesses said he didn't know the Bible very well. And so they, these observations that the critics have used now, I think, are flipping 180 as evidence that he couldn't have done it. There are 208 named characters, and the more people that Joseph's got to keep straight in his head, the harder it is. Um, it is true. The book kind of goes through generations, so people will show up and then disappear for good. But overall, the more people you've got to think about and keep straight, the, the more difficult it is. There are 45 different social geographic groups throughout. There's a couple of genealogies that are kept completely straight throughout. One's in Ether, and then the other one is the rest of the book. Um, it also is curious that God has over 100 different uh, description, descriptive names for him. Um, the geographies are interesting, and there, there are the critics who, who don't like the discussion about Nahum, which is in on the coast there uh, of the Yemen-Oman area there, where he goes down and, and finds a place called Nahum. And it's a bullseye uh, hit for Joseph Smith. He, um, 
And then there are other things like the wadis on the course on the coast that correspond to bountiful. And, and at least 15 of these, and, it's, and at least a couple of two or three correspond to geographies that are there now. But then we get over to the promised land, which uh, has over 150 different locations, over 400 geographical references. And Joseph is keeping all of these straight. Now, there's one or two people say, I think he's got the directions wrong. But when you think about that's all, uh, with so many, uh, it, it still is an amazing feat. There's ecological references. There's a monetary system of weights. And then the chronology is kept very straight. There are three different chronological systems in the Book of Mormon kept straight and over 100 references. One of the really interesting things is there's at least 77 storylines. And you have to think each one of these storylines probably wasn't thought up in real time. He probably would have had to have contemplated this ahead of time and then stored it in memory or got some kind of an outline there. There's 77 of these. There's flashbacks and embedded storylines, which are really hard if you're just doing this all in your head. If you're writing it, you can go back pages and see, oh, yeah, here's what happened. And I'm going to reproduce that here forward. But there's at least five uh, uh, prolonged uh, flashbacks and embedded storylines that would have been hard. 68 sermons. And if you read some of these, they're rather quite eloquent. They, the commentary is intricate, multifaceted, lots of topics. And again, the preparation uh, for these you, that you would expect from a, just a regular writer or, or orator uh, would be significant for some of them. There's formal headings to 21 of the chapters and books, and then there's 121 editorial promises. And what they are is where the text says, we're going to talk about something in the future, or we're going to discuss a specific subject uh, in, in the next uh, few pages. And so this could help Joseph remembering where he wants to go, but it's also telling him one thing he's got to make sure and fulfill. Again, increasing the complexity of the dictation. Um, the, the book also refers to internal sources like the brass plates and, and various letters and things that uh, add a, a level of, of challenge to keeping everything straight. And he does. And then things like biblical law, olive tree husbandry and warfare tactics are discussed in some detail more than you would expect Joseph to have learned in school. You would have expected him to have, have access these in some book, but there's nobody remembering Joseph going to bookstores, going to libraries. There were libraries there within walking distance, but nobody remembers him ever going there to do any kind of research or anything like that. So as we look at the complexity of the Book of Mormon, and, and Jake, maybe I'll just, any questions or anything about the list you want to mention? or I remember, and, th and this will kind of go into the translation process. Because what blows my mind the most about how complex the Book of Mormon is, is that Joseph just dictated the whole thing and never went back and never, when he stopped, had to, you know, read back where he left off. And he was still able to produce or be inspired to produce the this complex of a book. And so I don't have much else to say. Thank you for going through that. So maybe since you uh, explained kind of all of these points about the complexity of the Book of Mormon, maybe we can talk about, now we can talk about Joseph Smith's composition and oratory skills, you know, as documented in 1829. I, I thought when you were going through the, the, the list and you said there was no punctuation, and I thought that was... That, that goes with one of these points in, in his documented composition skills in 1829 when... 
John H. Gilbert, who was not a member of the church and never became a member, correct? Correct, yeah. So he would have had no reason to go along with this charade if Joseph Smith was lying. And so, I mean, he says that, you know, there were, he, he had a, a great deal of trouble <laughs> with the Book of Mormon because there, no comp- there was no punctuation. And uh, when, when asked, I'll just read from here, when asked, was he, Joseph Smith, educated? And he responded, oh, no, not, not at all then. <laughs> and so I, I, think, I think that's a really interesting tie that you have there between the complexity of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's composition skills. Maybe, do you want to talk about any more of his skills in 1829, oratory and composition? I'm sure. Uh, so, so we're going, and, and you've got it there on the, uh, the page there. And if anyone downloads it, they'll have these things as well. But the gap, we're able to see the gap as we look at what Joseph's documentable skills are in 1829. We're indebted to the historical record, and we're going to both friendly and unfriendly sources. And and let me just say, Joseph wasn't dumb. I'm I'm not arguing Joseph was dumb. There are some skeptics who come in and, and think that I'm saying he's dumb. No, no. I'm saying that neither is he or anyone smart enough to dictate a first draft that's also the final draft of a book as complex as the Book of Mormon. So he was intelligent. Um, He himself reported having about a third grade education. Um, There is one author who says Joseph had seven years of opportunity, but that particular author doesn't tell us that whether Joseph attended for seven years or what if he did attend. For seven years, what does that mean? This is a district school in upstate New York in the 1820s. Again, I'm guessing he probably would have had the education of about a third or fourth grader. And then nobody called Joseph educated in that stage. Not a single person. There's not a single quote. Um, the district schools didn't teach composition. You know, if you've had a composition class, you you fill out a, you write a story or an essay and then you hand it in and then you get it back with marks and rewrite it. They didn't have paper. It was very expensive. Inkwells and things were available for letters and things, but to actually be able to compose something of 10 pages was totally beyond their, the, the expense uh, that they could, could uh, contribute for that for, for the children there in the district schools. Um, Isaac Hale called him not very well educated in 1825. You mentioned John Gilbert. Uh, Palmeroy Tucker Tucker is the one who said Joseph read dime novels, but he also said Joseph was uneducated and ignorant. Uh, An 1830 source, this is, you know, within the time frame of the publishing of the Book of Mormon, said that Joseph's mental powers were limited and that he may have had opportunity to go to school, but he didn't make very much use of it. Lucy's mother, or uh, Joseph's mother, Lucy, said that Joseph was less inclined to the perusal of books than any of the rest of our children His younger brother, William, said that he was illiterate to some extent, but that he was entirely unlettered is a mistake. And we can't document that Joseph Smith had written one letter prior to the book uh, being finished, the dictation being finished. But beyond that one letter, there's no evidence that Joseph had written anything, uh, let alone a book-length manuscript. Um, If we look at his oratory skills and we find Lucy Max Smith's autobiography, and, and she reported that Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. 
The problem is, and, and people want to say, well, he's just rehearsing here for the Book of Mormon recitation, but Lucy Mack's comment is in the context that the angel was talking to Joseph and giving him this information. Lucy Max Smith never would have agreed with the idea that Joseph was smart enough to generate the whole Book of Mormon of himself. That would be misrepresenting many of, of Lucy's comments about the Book of Mormon. Another uh, individual who's commonly qu quoted by uh, skeptics is Orsimus Turner. And he talked about Joseph's involvement with the Juvenile Debating Club and as a Methodist exhorter. But again, he's not placing Joseph as a super intellectual because he also says that Joseph possessed of less than ordinary intellect. So these quotes really don't support a Joseph Smith who could dictate a complex book. Um, Richard Bushman said that Joseph simply had no reputation as a preacher. He isn't known to have preached a sermon before the church was organized in 1830. So as an orator, we cannot document that he had any uh, real preparation or training or experience uh, to complete a three-month uh, recitation. You, you mentioned the translation process, um, Jake, and the uh, we have quite a number of eyewitness accounts, and these are available online. There's over 200 of them. Jack Welch has compiled all of them. Anybody who mentioned the, the translation, there's a whole list there. If you want to be an expert on the translation, easy to get this PDF and just read through it. It's, it's uh, I can't remember, 60, 80 pages. Well, you know what blows them. my mind about that is, I, before reading your PDF here, I had, I didn't know that there were multiple eyewitnesses to the translation process. When I read this, this point that you have many onlookers, followers, and skeptics were permitted to view Joseph Smith as he dictated to the scribes. And that's, I, I had no idea. That's incredible. Like you, I, if, if, if Joseph really was a genius and memorized all this, I'd think that maybe he would have a little stage fright to some skeptics, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I just like to think of some, you know, some funny imaginative things, but like, wow, like, I, I didn't realize so many people were able to, you said 200? There's, there's 200 accounts. Many of them are multiple. Okay. Oh, there's multiple people. Oliver, okay. Martin, Sorry, Martin, that was a silly question. <laughs> scattered others. But. Cool. Wow. So, and I also was thinking, as as you were talking about the Joseph Smith's composition skills and oratory skills, and sorry if we're not getting to the translation process quite yet, but I had a, a funny question that I was thinking too, was uh, in, in your article, Brian authored Proving to the World the Unique Declaration in Doctrine and Covenant Section 20 for Fair Latter-day Saints.org. And you had a section where you talked about Christopher Paolini, how he wrote Aragon when he was I guess it came out when he was 19 and he had worked on it as a teenager and for four years. And for, for four years. I, well, I guess that kind of dispels the rumor of, well, Joseph Smith did this in as few as 57, <laughs> but 57 days, not years. But anyway, was, and I just thought of this question like, but Brian, I've read Aragon and Christopher Paulini was 19 when he wrote that. Doesn't that show some evidence that Joseph possibly could have done the same thing? And I actually compared Joseph Smith to other authors, and, and Paolini was one, and there are several others who had published books prior to age 24. And the, uh, they were all more educated, except for, I think, Jane Austen. Jane Austen or uh, Shelley, who did Frankenstein, I can't remember. They all had a better education, but none of their books uh, were as complex as the Book of Mormon, and the longest one from this group 
was only 160,000, 180,000 words, and the Book of Mormon is nearly 270. And these are people who are going through drafts. I mean, it's a very different process from Joseph Smith dictating an oral account that becomes a Book of Mormon, and these, these young authors who are creating through multiple drafts books that aren't as complex. So uh, it, it's not, I think, a strong argument to use these other authors, but go to the, uh, the uh, if you want to go to the website where uh, you can look at this, it's curiously unique. Um, it's in the interpreter, and I'll, I'll see if I can bring it up here. Uh, but there's charts, and I go through word counts and complexities and everything. And let me just share that here real quick. Can you see that there, Jake? Um, yes, yeah. Um, but it's curiously unique. Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon. And it, we compare the difficulty of it, and Paulini's on here somewhere. Um, but there he is right there. But his book was 160, and, and it's only written to about a fourth grade level. The Book of Mormon is eighth grade. So all of these comparisons, I looked at, I'm, I, I'm looking to see if there is anything that's similar, and I really couldn't find that. So uh, recommend that to anybody who's interested in that article. And you can actually listen to an MP3 version of it if you'd like. So I think on face value, when I heard that, oh, Christopher Paolini did this and this, and some other authors, you know, pretty remarkable at young ages and producing such works like that. But then when you describe it, and when we when I try to read more about it, and you you know you dive deeper into that, it totally doesn't even compare to the process of writing and translating the Book of Mormon and the complexity and and all of that. And so that really helps. And I think that especially because yeah, when I see something that sort of threatens what I thought I used to know, and then it turning out to just be totally baseless and not a very good argument at all. So thank you for expanding on that a little bit. The uh, translation process is is unique as well. And I don't like the word translation, to be honest with you, because it's a revelation. Joseph Smith doesn't know the language on the plates. He isn't translating in any sense of the word as far as we know. He's being given a revelation. It may come through the seer stone. There's controversy there. Um, but we can identify certain characteristics of what happened. It was in less than 85 days and possibly as few as 57. Jack Welch has looked very detailed on this, has some really good work. Uh, the number of words per day would have been between 2,700 and 4,700. Um, the number of words that Joseph would dictate to the scribe before he would stop to check the accuracy was at least 20 to 30 words. And we'll come back to that. That's that's a nice uh, number there. Um, some of the names were spilled, spelled out. Difficult words were spelled out, suggesting he is reading the seer stone, but there's reasons to believe he wasn't. Um, according to eyewitnesses, there were no pre-existing manuscripts or books. Now, there's a lot of controversy over, did Joseph use an open Bible? Because there are certain uh, chapters that are just verbatim from the King James, almost. Not, they're not totally... And people will say he must have had the Bible open there. Well, uh, we have eyewitnesses, one from Harmony, one from Fayette, who said Joseph didn't use any books. There are uh, 12 chapters in Second Nephi 
where he um, is, is quoting Isaiah and the chapters are very similar. But you have to think about what's going on here. If Joseph were doing that, the number of words in those is would have been about a day and a half to two days worth of dictation. So for a day and a half, two days, Joseph isn't using the seer stone. He's just staring at the Bible. I think somebody would have mentioned it, but just so that people don't want to argue, I'm writing a manuscript and I'm leaving it as an open-ended question. I don't think we know. I don't think he probably did, but I'm not going to argue about it. it, it it's a point that the skeptics want to jump on, I guess, because they think they can win it. But uh, it's not that important uh, because that the, the Bible sections only constitute 5.8% of the whole book. Now, people have been said, oh, yeah, you know, it, he plagiarized the King James Bible, five, uh, you know, 50% or 25%. No, it's 5.8%. And then, of course, the uh, vernacular is similar in many places, but, but it, it wasn't that much. Joseph still had to come up with a lot of words besides the ones that are similar to chapters in the Bible. There, uh, there were onlookers, like you said, that were believers and unbelievers got to watch him. I mean, he's just going to town and they're coming and looking at it and saying, man, this is weird. Uh, some are moved, most are not. Um, and then after breaks, as you said, Joseph would start up again. And I asked Orson Scott Card, do you know who he is? Yeah, I do. Very well-known uh, novelist. Wait, you just asked him, like just... You were hanging out once or <laughs> he was at a conference. He was at a conference. I went up after and I said, can you do this? He goes, I can't do this. I don't know any writer who can just start up right where you left off. He says, when I go back to writing, I have to go back and read several pages before I can get my mind into the story and then move forward. So the fact that he would just start right up is, is remarkable and, and kind of unexplainable if he is the actual author. Um, there were some non-believing scribes that wrote small portions. Um, and then the last thing on this chart is probably the most significant. No phrases were resequenced after being spoken. And just imagine next time you're, you're writing or dictating a text or an email that you cannot re rearrange any sentences and then, then plan to dictate, you know, several hundred words or something. Um, the fact that, that it was coherent enough on its very first dictation that it didn't need it, that none of the sentences needed resequencing is, is a, a an easy to talk about characteristic that is difficult to explain. Um, even great orators or writers don't get every sentence correct one right after another. It, it's an interesting find there. I just thought of when you said when you said you can't resequence, I just thought, okay, I write out a text or I write out something, right? And no going back. Uh, you did mention that they could go and sp spell check and make sure the grammar is correct. But I just thought, okay, I write this thing. Then someone takes it, prints it out. And for the rest of my life and for the rest of history, it's going to be put against me for my credibility and said that I'm a liar and I can't go back and change it. And I just... I think how terrifying that would be. <laughs> well, and, and just, just to be complete, Joseph Smith did go back and make several thousand changes in the 1837 and the 1840 uh, publications. And I went through, there's a book out by, he's an, actually an antagonist, anti-Mormon, Gerald Tanner. 
and it's entitled 3913 Changes in the Book of Mormon. And he just went through, it's a very amateurish study, but he just circled in, in a, a, a current publication of the Book of Mormon, all the changes from the 1830 publication. And he came up with 3913. And I went through it and did an Excel sheet for every single page categorized them all. And with one exception of a phrase that Joseph added to one of the Isaiah chapters, none of these changes involved more than five words. None of them involved the rearranging of a sentence or anything. What he's trying to do is bring the early uh, English dialect up to just the 1820s, 1830s dialect. It's grammar stuff, and it's not impressive. There's three or four of them that I talk about in that article about the changes that people say are significant. None of them involve more than three or four words, and I would argue they're just for clarity. They're not changing doctrine. So it, even though people can say, oh, there were lots of edits, you know, that's misleading. And the title of his book, I think, is misleading because, yeah, there were changes, but none of them, I would argue, is significant. So... Uh, there, there, I just wanted to make sure that, that we understand there were some changes by Joseph himself, but these were not the kinds of edits that you, you see editors doing commonly to get a book up to that final draft. Thank you for that. For, thank you for clearing that up. Because again, at face value, when I see something that says 3,900 and so uh, changes to the Book of Mormon, and then I hear Joseph Smith went back and changed it in 1837 or 1840. I'd be a little freaked out, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But thank you for clearing that up. And uh, I think that that really helps me as well. So so I guess if we're moving along, if, if and if you have anything else to say about the translation process, I, I really like this little piece that you put in of trying to duplicate Joseph Smith's efforts and look and using a smartphone so you wouldn't need any scribe. It would just you just, it's like the voice to text apps kind of thing. Do you mind uh, touching on that for a little bit? Not at all. Uh, the, um, the smartphone allows us to bypass the need for an Oliver Cowdery or a scribe. And anybody who has a smartphone can duplicate or at least attempt to do so what Joseph did. All you have to do is dictate a series of text messages that are 20 to 30 words each to a recipient who lines them up one right after another. Now, before you hit send, go ahead and correct grammar and spelling because Joseph came back and did some of that. But once you send it, the sequence and meaning of the phrases and sentences can't be altered. And then you just have to repeat that process 10,000 times or so to create a manuscript of 270,000. And this, this is not an exaggeration. This is really a, a description of what Joseph Smith did. And those who want to attribute um, that to his intellect, I think, would, would strengthen their, their discussion by uh, showing another author who has a genius who has done it and uh, of even 50,000 words, and that's a number I pull out of a hat, but 10,000 words or 20,000 words. It's not the way even geniuses write their books. And I've read several biographies of Stephen Hawking and, and others, Bertrand Russell, and, and these are people who've, geniuses who've published, but you read their biographies and they're going back and forth with their editors for months and months. And they're getting very frustrated sometimes um, because the, they want to get it uh, to a final draft state. And it's requiring more than they really like. But they aren't just sending in one draft and, and the editor going, oh, this is gold. Let's just print it. That, that's not happening. Wow. 10,000 times. I just, 
that's just so crazy to me. It it just it freaks me out because for some reason I start to feel anxiety like, oh my gosh, 10,000 times to doing the 20 to 30 words each and then no changing. Oh my gosh. So that that's just so cool. Thank you for including that in this amazing PDF. And I I guess I I did see that you had a little graph here comparing word counts per year. I know it was before what we just did. And then you have the charting, the naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon. You have two charts here. And I just just love seeing stuff like this. You have Joseph Smith, and then you have Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, and uh, J.K. Rowling. And I love how you show that, and maybe you can talk about it, and maybe I'll I'll just let you talk about that for a minute. Well, again, uh, this comes from the article uh, where I compared Joseph as an author, a 23-year-old author, to all other authors. Everyone I could find, and you know, we're, we're blessed these days with the internet because you can get a, a short biography, and not everything on Wikipedia is believable, but it, it's mostly accurate. And if all you need is general descriptions anyway, then then it, it's quite trustworthy. And so you want to find out the age and education for authors that you can do that at a click that before you'd had to go to an encyclopedia and hope that the information was there. And a lot of these authors that I studied there have web pages that talk about they have bibliographies there and things. So it makes it easy to compare Joseph to other authors. And this this chart here just demonstrates that Joseph did his his primary, his biggest work first. And it's, it's huge. And then he did very little after that. That's that's not the way authors generally do it. By the time Shakespeare had written his first play, age-wise, he was 26, Joseph had completed almost all of his writing. I mean, there's like I say, a few things here. And then Shakespeare produced one or two plays every year, except one or two through the rest of his life. We see uh, Tolkien, and Joseph is probably compared to Tolkien more than any other author, because Lord of the Rings has its own world and it uses some old English and things. But he he was in his 60s when he finished that. And, and so he'd been preparing for a long time. It went through lots of edits and, and he had sent uh, chapters to C.S. Lewis for review and, and all of this. So so here we find his, his magnum opus clear out here in, in the 60s. He'd been teaching classics, at, I think at Oxford. Um, we also, J.K. Rowling, I, I love the uh, Harry Potter uh, uh, movies. I haven't read the books, but uh, I think it's great storytelling. But she uh, she started when she was later. And, and of course, there's some crescendo in here, but then very consistent. But um, there are one hit wonders. And that's what Joseph Smith was, Gone with the Wind. And I forget who authored that. But there's a chart in that article where I compare Joseph to one hit wonders. And there are other authors who just do one, but Joseph is less in, in their, their writing, they're not dictating and their uh, education is different. The uh, difficulty level, I mean, there's lots of, of disparity in, in comparing them to Joseph, but I tried to, I tried to find somebody who was similar to Joseph with this one hit wonder as we see in this chart. So, I, I, the last thing we could just look at, if you wanted to, is the um, different theories. Do you want me to run through those real quick? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that's an, that was another huge one that I definitely wanted to look at. Because throughout my life, I feel like I just, because, uh, you know, how the Book of Mormon's been such a strong anchor for me f- for my whole life. And it's just been such an amazing tool that I've had to, to help me you know, strengthen my faith. I've heard skeptics theories and just, at least for me, like nothing has been really that 
convincing to me, not yet. And so I joke with friends sometimes. I'm like, well, if something convincing enough comes along, maybe, but I just haven't heard anything. And so maybe, yeah, you could go through some of the skeptics theories. I know in this chart that you have here that it has, you know, Joseph Smith's intellect and then that goes away for, I mean, several decades. And Solomon Spaulding seems to be the more popular one. Then that goes away. And then you've got some other things and Solomon Spaulding will pop up, you know, maybe every few decades, Joseph Smith's intellect will pop up every few decades. But yeah, if you could go through and and I'll just let you kind of go for it on, on, on that section. Great. And uh, for those that, that want to just read these, just a synopsis, and I've, I've written more extensively elsewhere, and uh, a BYU Studies article talks about several of these. But what I did is I created a database of every published description of how Joseph created the Book of Mormon by skeptics, naturalists, I call them. Joseph did it naturally, used his natural skills, not help from God or anything how do they think he came up with all the words? And here's the uh, a summary of the primary theories. Solomon Spaulding uh, was a guy who created a manuscript in 1812, and he died two years later. But when the Book of Mormon came out in 1830, there were some people who read the Book of Mormon and says, hey, these are the same names and the same plot line as that, that Spaulding manuscript I read or had read to me back in 1812. And, and so they're, they're making this claim, but the manuscript um, isn't available. Uh, the people, there are people who have it, but they know it isn't similar to the Book of Mormon, so they, they hide it away. It, they die off, and eventually it shows up in 1884, and it's so different uh, that, that people are saying this can't be the source of the Book of Mormon. It's only 50,000, 51,000 words. So even if Joseph borrowed every word, he's still got to come up with over 200,000 words. So it doesn't work as an explanation. Um, but it was very popular for over 50 years. There's a collaborator theory that Joseph was helped most often by Oliver Cowdery or Sidney Rigdon or his father. Uh, the problem with, with these is that the documented introduction between Joseph and Oliver or Joseph and Sidney, it's very well documented historically. So to believe that there's there's some uh, conspiracy going on for them to get together and collaborate before the, the historically documented introductions between these men, it's just, it's a difficult sell. This isn't a real popular theory. There's a mental illness theory that that Joseph would go in, had mental illness, or he'd go into some kind of a mental state, a dissociated state. And from there, he could just dictate the Book of Mormon effortlessly. And that's a problem because mental illness always diminishes a person's abilities. It never enhances that. Uh, I guess a narcissist would have great confidence in what they're doing more than a regular person, but that doesn't mean what they're doing is any better. A manic depressive would have a lot more uh, energy than a normal person. But if you've ever seen anybody in a manic phase of of, uh, manic depression, their thinking is tangential. I mean, they are everywhere. The ability to to create the syntax and and wordsmith a coherent sentence and, and one that right after another is just not within their ability. So mental illness is not going to help a person create a complex book. Automatic writing, uh, where a person goes into a trance state, a a storytelling mode, one author calls it, and from there they can just dictate a book without having to use any cognitive ability. That's a fantasy. 
Transes don't enhance a person's ability. They might make them more calm inside so they feel like they're more creative, but what they're producing isn't any better than, than when they're not in a transform and it's a trans state and, and it's probably going to be worse than it was. There's a storytelling theory. I've got an article coming out in Interpreter on this, analyzing this, but professional storytellers use a series of formulaic words that are in a system and that's how they're able to keep going so smoothly. And it takes years to learn all these formulas. And, and there's just no sign of those in the Book of Mormon text. And, and they leave a trace, a very noticeable trace. So that doesn't work. The, another fairly popular idea is that Joseph was like a revivalist preacher. A revivalist preacher could show up on day one and preach for two hours and show up on day two and preach for two hours and show up on day three for two hours and do this for a week or two. And so why couldn't that be the technique Joseph uses to put the Book of Mormon together? The problem is if, if these, these men and some women are just really good orators, they're using oratory technique, the same that's taught in colleges and, and elsewhere throughout the world. They immerse themselves in the material. They, they read the Bible and become extremely familiar. And then they have a gift for, for speaking. They really do. But but they use training and practice to just become very good at this, this modality. And, and there's just no ev evidence Joseph did any of this. So to, to say that Joseph in 1823 is a 20, 1829 as a 23-year-old farmer who'd never given any preaching or, or, or any kind of a discourse would, would have been using these techniques is, is just not a very strong argument. Creative writing theory posits that Joseph just wrote the book and nobody knew about it, that he found the paper, which he had no money for, and then he wrote whatever drafts he needed and hid it all away from everybody and somehow would memorize it at night or sneak the papers in to the translating uh, sessions or he was using them when nobody was looking and Oliver and, and the scribes were, were complicit. Again, the, the whole thing has all kinds of problems because writing a book like this would require quite a deep skill set and, and then fooling everybody that and just read those accounts. There's lots of accounts of what happened. Uh, it, it's, again, I don't think another strong argument. Probably the most popular one, Jake, today is the last one on this list, intellect theory. And that just basically says Joseph had all the genius he needed. How smart was Joseph in 1829? He was smart enough to dictate the Book of Mormon. Well, how smart do you have to be to dictate the Book of Mormon? Well, as smart as Joseph was in 1829. Now, it's circular <laughs> reasoning. I'm not trying to be snarky or critical, but that's honestly the, the argument that they give. They're willing to grant Joseph whatever level of genius is needed to, to, do, uh, to create the word stream. And, and most of them don't really want to look at the skills that would be needed. They don't want to look at the historical record to find out what it says because they'll say, oh, well, it's not complete and everybody's biased anyway. Um, I had one uh, very sincere uh, former Latter-day Saint say, no, they say Joseph isn't very smart, but here's what's going on. The, the people who believed in Joseph wanted to, to make it look like he couldn't create the Book of Mormon. So they're going to all say he's too dumb to do it. And the people who uh, don't believe in Joseph Smith, his critics, they don't want to give him any credit for being able to do it. So they're saying that he's not smart enough to do it either. So what that effectively does is any person, whether they're believer or unbeliever, critic or follower, if they say Joseph didn't have the intelligence needed to dictate the Book of Mormon, 
basically we can disbelieve what they say because because they were all too biased. And and it, again, it's it's a problematic argument. I think uh, not not very uh, convincing. So anyway, these are the most popular theories, and I've I've asked for help. Uh, from skeptics to say, look, if you've got another theory, you've got other evidences, let's just get transparent. And, and Jake, I want to say people will say this maybe is apologetic mumbo jumbo. I and and that's okay. I, I'm thick skinned on that, but I really want to be transparent. And and I want to get all the evidence out there. Is there a gap? When we when we look at, at the evidences, when we look at what we think we would need to be able to dictate the Book of Mormon, and then uh, what does do we find in the historical record? Is there a gap there? I think there is. And believers will probably look at that and say, well, that that helps my spiritual conviction that the Book of Mormon is, is from God. It isn't going to convince any unbeliever. I, I have no hope of that at all. But I, you know, God tells us that signs will follow those that believe. They don't proceed. Okay. Signs, people want to consume it on their lusts. So they want, show me a sign, you know, and even when they see signs in those situations, they aren't converted. But a person who has a spiritual testimony who then sees this kind of data is going to say, yeah, you know, that fits. That's what I would expect. And God even calls it proof. And so, so that's where I am with this. I'm not trying to convince unbelievers to believe that that's nonsense. That would never happen. But for those of us who have had a spiritual conviction, this is an intellectual reinforcement, I think, that can be beneficial, especially as we get bombarded by so much uh, antagonistic uh, message uh, and, and antagonistic voices every day. Thank you, Brian. Wow, I uh, I feel like I shouldn't say anything else. I I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this author gap. It's such such a cool way to think about that scripture in DNC twenty of God proving to the world of His existence and that He calls modern prophets. And it could be this author gap. That's that's so fascinating to me, and I, I'm really glad that you brought up how it's an intellectual support to testimony. I appreciate your time. I appreciate for your audience uh, that if they were able to stay with it this long, and encourage you if you have uh, any feedback, you can get a hold of me at, at josephsmithpolygamy.org. I pick up the mail there, um, but uh, happy to hear your comments or write to Jake or whatever. But if you have anything uh, here that you think is misrepresented or inaccurate, let's get transparent. Let's just get all the data out there. Is there a gap? Yes or no or no. And then if there is a gap, what could that possibly mean? I mean, that's that's where I'd like us to be. Thanks to the transparencyist Brian Hales. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the, I like the that. Saints and Scripted podcast. I was going to introduce you as transparencyist Brian Hales, but for some reason I forgot because I get all flustered up on the camera. But thanks again, Brian. Uh, thank you for watching uh, on the Saints and Scripted podcast. Yeah, like Brian said, if you if you see these PDFs, and we'll have this in the in the description, and you can download it. We uh, we'll also have a an a link to Brian's article. The Proving to the World, the Declaration Inside the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 20. Comment below, message us, message Brian from, from the email that he said earlier, and uh, we'll see you later. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.